Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, thank you. That sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, I was involved in a couple of church plants when we were in uh, Worcester in the uh, English Midlands. Things that I was involved in, they didn't, didn't want you to hear that. It was one of the most exciting things that I was ever involved in, uh, seeing a, a church spring up where there has been no gospel witness. And we, we transplanted about 60 members of our congregation to another part of the city of Worcester, and uh, the great thing was that on a Sunday morning, the gospel was being preached in two places, and people were being saved. So it was fantastic, so I'd encourage you to come along this evening. Uh, can I also mention, I've been asked to, to just flag up the fact that we have a, a seminar tomorrow, immediately after the Bible reading. Uh, my wife and I are going to be speaking on the subject of invest your suffering. Um, and uh, I'm always a little bit embarrassed about uh, promoting a book that I've, I've, I've written, but um, it's a subject that I think touches, impinges on all our lives. 23 years ago, my wife became very seriously ill when she was pregnant with her, our fourth child, and uh, for a while it was touch and go whether she'd make it. She, she got through the pregnancy, uh, but she was left with a, with a disability that has stayed with us for all of that time. We don't know what it is. It's never been diagnosed. It's similar in some ways to multiple cirrhosis, um, but it has all sorts of implications, including um, terrible periods of intense pain. So last night she had four pain attacks. We were up most of the night because of, because of that. And uh, so you wouldn't guess that looking at her. She's very brave. Uh, um, I'm very cowardly, but she's very brave. And uh, out of that experience, I was preaching at Keswick, Keswick Convention a couple of years ago, and someone said to me from my VP, will you please write about your experiences? Because I'd say two things. Number one, the last 23 years have been incredibly difficult. If you live with chronic illness, you know what that means. And, and there have been all sorts of trials and troubles, all sorts of occasions when we simply said to the Lord, we don't understand. What are you doing, God? That's the first thing we've learned. But the second thing, it has been intensely fruitful. The Lord has used what we've gone through to be a blessing first to us and then to his people and then to his church. And so really, it's out of that experience that, that uh, I wrote this book. And that's what we'll be sharing tomorrow. So if you're going through trials, if we minister to people going through trials, that seminar hopefully will be um, somewhat appropriate for you. Um, I, I think you have to sign up for it. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. Well, if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 2, and uh, we're going to uh, continue with the studies. I, I kind of uh, overestimated or underestimated yesterday. I thought we'd get through the first 13 verses. We only got as far as verse 3. So there you go. Um, I, I've preached something like 3,000 sermons in my lifetime. My wife says, if you were to put all my sermons end to end they still wouldn't reach a conclusion, which is very unkind, don't you think? Uh, but actually, we, we'll probably have to spend more time in Acts 2 than, than I'd anticipated. I thought we'd have three mornings. We'll have at least four now. So uh, we're not going to get that far through it, I'm afraid, uh, in the time that, that, that we have. We looked at the first three verses. This is a monumental chapter. This is a chapter in which the kind of uh, tectonic plates shift 
Up until this point, God's, God's purposes have been focused on the nation of Israel, on the, the Jewish people. And, and up until this point, that, that's been the, the focus of, uh, of all his revelation and all his blessing and all his grace. And there have been people who have been added to Israel. The Gentiles been saved like Ruth and Rahab and Naaman and others. And, and there's always been that promise in the Old Testament that one day the door will be thrown open to the, to the Gentiles. Well, I, I want to suggest, and we'll be looking at this this morning, this is the moment when it happens. This is the significant moment when God says, now the purpose is not for one nation, but for all the nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. So why have I chosen to speak on Acts chapter 2? Well, quite simply, this is one of the great missional events in the purposes of God. Christ is now reigning over the whole universe. All things are under his feet. He has sent the Holy Spirit so that the church should go in the power of the Spirit and take the gospel to the whole world. From the heart of God, through the heart of the church, into the heart of the world. And if your church... And if my church doesn't have a heart and a vision for the world, then to put it quite simply, we are being disobedient to the heavenly vision. This is what we're called to be, a world, uh, a, a world sending or a sending into the world church, a church that is, is, is a heart for the whole world. And so that's what this chapter is about. Let me read again the first uh, few verses. Down, I think, this morning, uh, should we say, into verse 21. So verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of them hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is the word of the living God. Let's bow for a moment in prayer. Let's ask God's grace and help. Lord God, we thank you again for your word. And we pray that this morning uh, we may know something of the presence of your spirit. 
We thank you that he wrote this book. We thank you that he comes as we, as we preach and as we listen, and he takes the truth of the word and he, he brings it powerfully into our lives and into our hearts. Lord, may he fulfill his ministry this morning, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, I was uh, speaking at a conference where the, the main speaker, the, the man who's giving the Bible readings, was Don Carson. I was just doing a couple of seminars, but Don was the main preacher that, uh, that week. Now, most of you will have heard of Don. I think he's been to, to, to Bangor Worldwide. Is that right? Not yet, okay, he's on his way, so there you go, he is coming, and, and, and if you don't, if you've never heard him, you, you, or if you have heard him, you realise that Don is maybe uh, the preeminent uh, evangelical scholar of the 21st century, he's, he's a man with a brilliant brain, he, he's written a, a prolific number of books, whenever he speaks in defence of the gospel, he's well worth listening to, he is one of the, the headline preachers and one of the headline theologians in the Church of Jesus Christ today, a man with immense gifts, a man who has been gifted by God in amazing ways. And at the beginning of this conference, we met for prayer, just a few of us, and, and someone asked Don, well, you're going to be preaching this week, particularly to students, what can we pray for, Don? And he thought for a moment, and he said, it's very simple, just pray for one thing. Pray that this week I may know the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Pray that we may feel the unction of heaven as I preach this week. If the Holy Spirit doesn't come, it will just be words. It will just be... Now, now I, I found that immensely uh, challenging and immensely humbling. Here's a man with amazing gifts, tremendous gifts, and yet conscious of his desperate need for the Spirit of God. It said of the great Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that up into his pulpit in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, there were 15 steps. And as he went up, he was a heavy set man, but as he went up those steps to preach on a Sunday morning, each step he would pray, Oh God, send your spirit. Oh God, send your spirit. Oh God, send your blessed spirit. He was conscious that for all his gifts and for all the power of his ministry, it all depended on God. Brothers and sisters, we desperately need God. Without the Holy Spirit touching the Word of God, then all our ministry is in vain. God the Father delights to bless his children. I mentioned, I think, on Sunday evening, that great, wonderful paean of praise that you get at the beginning of Ephesians. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, all the way down to verse 14. In English at school, they teach you that you need to take a breath from time to time. And when you take a breath, you put a full stop. Is that right? Now, now in, in that section of, of Ephesians, Paul starts at verse 3, and he doesn't stop. He doesn't take a stop. There's no full stop. It simply pours out of him the glory of the gospel. Are you excited by the gospel this morning? Well, some of you are. That's good. Maybe the Baptist, I don't know, or the Pentecostal, who knows? But, but, but we should all be excited and thrilled by the gospel. Paul was. God the Father has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before the world? Well, he was loving his son amazingly, and he was loving you. He set his heart upon you before the stars were flung into space, and he designed to, to bring you into his family and to adopt you and to bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. And the Father's plan was that. And the Son came, and he died to redeem you. 
He shed his blood on the cross to pay the price for your sin so that God could bring you to himself and not just forgive your sins, not just set your sins behind his back, but bless you with every blessing so that he would clothe you in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at you now, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see you as neutral, he sees you clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Good. (laughs) And then the Holy Spirit, he is the one who comes to seal us against the day of redemption. In other words, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to take the blessings that the Father plans and the blessings that the Son achieved and to bring them directly into our lives. Every spiritual blessing we have is administered into our hearts and lives by the Holy Spirit, planned by the Father, won by the Son, administered by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we need to honour the Holy Spirit, don't we? We need to recognize him as God. We need to love him and we need to adore him as we adore the Father and the Son in the Blessed Trinity. And here we have the Spirit coming for the first time to the church. Last uh, morning, yesterday morning, we asked two questions. When did it happen uh, and what took place? And, And we began with that question, when? And of course it happened on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Not a day before, not a day afterwards. In God's design, in God's design, it had to be that day. It was that day for two reasons. First of all, it was a promise. It was a promise of a greater harvest. That The Pentecost harvest in, in, in the Jewish system was a kind of a foretaste of what the ultimate harvest would be. What God is saying is that one day there will be a harvest that will be so great that it will, it will cover the whole world. There will be people from every nation and tongue. And it's also a pointer. It's a pointer to the fact that we are now New Covenant believers. We are covenant believers with the Spirit coming on all flesh. And then we asked the question, well, what actually took place? And we looked at those two signs, those two symbols to begin with. Fire or wind, which is a symbol of the power of God and the life of God entering the church, and fire, which is a symbol of the purity of God. He is the Holy Spirit, and the presence of the Holy Spirit brings holiness to the church. We we ended last time by just beginning to think about the fact that, that that the wind and the fire together are a symbol of the presence of God what you might describe as a theophany. In the Old Testament, whenever God comes to visit his people, he comes very often in the symbol of of wind. So he speaks to Job out of the whirlwind or in fire, you know, the pillar of fire that, that followed Israel. These are theophanies. This is God coming down to visit his people. And and indeed, what's happening in the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 2 is that God is coming to visit the church. He's coming to dwell within the church. Keep your finger in Ephesians 2 and turn across, if you will, just for a moment to the book of of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. I said Acts 2, didn't I? Turn from Acts 2 to Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about the, the nature of the church. What is the church? Well, the church is the place where God dwells by his spirit, not a physical building. Remember the book of Exodus, where the people have been brought out of Egypt, and they've come into the, into the desert, and God has spoken to them in the desert, and, and they prepared the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is built, and everything is set fair. Suddenly, the glory of God comes into the tabernacle. And in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, what nation is like this nation? God dwells in the midst of his people. And when Solomon builds the temple, God dwells in the midst of his people. And then the book of Ezekiel, the glory of God departs. And yet the prophets speak of a time when God will come again and stand in his temple. And Jesus, the word made flesh, the word tabernacling amongst us, the glory of God comes and stands amongst human beings. 
And what happens on the day of Pentecost? Well, look at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Spiritual stones added together to build a spiritual building. We live in days where people are arguing that the church has to become as much like the world as it possibly can. Now, I'm all in favour of trying to connect with lost people. I'm all in favour of of understanding where the world is and trying to present the gospel in a way that connects with them and and make the church as as helpful and as friendly to unbelievers when they come in. But let me tell you something. I, I believe that the great danger is that we try to make the church more like the world in order to win the world. Shall I tell you what the world needs? The world needs the church to be the church. The world needs to know that this is the place where a holy God is at work. This is the dwelling place of God. And we should be loving and we should be gracious and we should be kind and, 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 and have our doors open to, to lost people. I'm all in favour of that. I, I love the, the, the sound of lost people coming to the church. It's wonderful when new people are, are saved, isn't it? And, and it's like, it's like a, a crash, you know, lots of little babies everywhere making all sorts of noise and all sorts of messes. Isn't it wonderful to have messy church? I mean, not in, you know, in the real sense. It's wonderful. Yet the church is the dwelling place of God. And it's interesting that when you, when you read about revivals, that's the one thing that people speak about. God by his spirit being present amongst uh, his people. Duncan Campbell describing revival like this. What is revival? Revival is the glory of God going amongst his people. Revival is the awesome holiness of God laying hold of a community. Revival is a community saturated with God. A community saturated with God. Brothers and sisters, we, we need revival, don't we? Okay. It seems to me that people over here are enthusiastic and the people over here say, never mind. We need revival, don't we, brothers and sisters? We need God to do something supernatural in these days. Oh, we, we don't give up and do nothing. We, we pray and we preach and we do everything we can and we spend ourselves for the kingdom. But oh, we need something from heaven. If you read through, through history, that's how God works in history. We need God to come and visit his people. At the time of the Welsh Revival, 1904-1905, a little village in Wales called Roche, and uh, Brian Edwards in his book on revival describes two little boys talking together one day and, and one said to the other, you know, it's amazing in our village now. Uh, something's happening in our village. And the other little boy said, yes, there is something amazing happening. It's almost as if it's Sunday every day. Why has that happened? And his friend said, well, you know why? Because Jesus has come to live in our village. Jesus has come to live. In our, and a little boy can see something and sense something of the presence of God. What is Pentecost? It is God coming to dwell amongst his people. And that should be the desire that God would manifest his presence amongst us. So, what happened? Fire and wind. And then number three, the third thing that happened, verse four, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Holy Spirit comes, he fills each one of the believers, they're they're already believers I would suggest, but he fills them and they speak in other languages. If you see the the way in which this this works out in the next few verses, it'll help us to understand what's happening. Verse 5, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They were there for Pentecost, they come from the whole of the uh, the Jewish diaspora, from every end of the the Roman Empire. If you look at the, at the, the names of the places where they've come from, it's every part of the Roman world, the east and the west, the north and the south. They come from all over to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Uh, sorry, the Pentecost. And, and as they're, they're there, probably going up to the 
temple for the time of worship, suddenly this crowd spills onto the street. And what happens? Look at verse 6. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of them heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not these men who are speaking Galileans? What does that mean? Well, they had a Galilean accent. I, I, I don't know whether you have areas of, 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 of Ireland where the accent is more pronounced than anywhere else. Oh, yes, okay. Well, we certainly do in England. The, the accent that is most despised in England, actually, is my accent, the Birmingham accent. And uh, if, I get in, if I get excited, I suddenly start speaking in a language no one can understand. It's called Bromay. And it's a little bit like this. And you wouldn't, so I will, I will control myself and contain myself. But here are men who are uneducated Galileans. They're not sophisticates. They, they haven't been to university and learnt these languages. And yet they are speaking in our own dialect. It's not just that they're speaking a general Greek language or a Greek... You know, most people in the, in the ancient world at that time spoke Greek. That was the lingua franca. Rather than Latin, most people spoke Greek. But it's not Greek. We can hear them speaking in our local dialects. All these different languages that are mentioned, all these different people groups, we can hear them speaking in, 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 uh, in a language that the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites understand. What's going on? Verse 8, this is, uh, then how is it that each of us can hear them in his own native languages? And you have this whole list of people amazed and perplexed. Verse 12, they said, what does this mean? How can they speaking in all these languages? If you look at verse 9 down to verse 11, you have 15 uh, nations mentioned. If you were to look at a map and try and locate them in the map, they're kind of every edge of the Roman Empire from the east to the west. The modern equivalent of these places would be around the Caspian Sea, down through Turkey into Iran and Iraq, across North Africa into Europe, ending up in Rome, and then going down a bit further into Arabia. So in other words, people from three continents, Asia and Africa and Europe, all of these different nations. So what is actually going on? The first thing that seems evident to me, and this is where we get slightly controversial, so if I'm too controversial, please don't leave, and you can talk to me afterwards. But uh, a first thing that seems clear to me is that this is real languages. They're speaking in languages that are understood. That's the miracle of it. That's why these people are amazed. It's not just that the, the disciples are speaking kind of gobbledygook and, and, and yet people are hearing something that seems to make sense. It seems to me that, that what is happening is, is a miracle in that they're speaking languages that they have never heard before. That's the first thing. The second thing is what are the contents of the languages? Well, they are proclaiming the great deeds, the mighty deeds of God. In other words, they're speaking about what God has done the great deeds of God in creation, but more of that, the deeds of God in salvation. I would suggest that probably what they're actually doing is talking about what Peter will talk about in his sermon. They're talking about the coming of God in, in the person of Christ. They're talking about the cross. They're talking about the resurrection. They're talking about the fact that God has conquered death, that, 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 that the gospel has come, that the, that the church is being born. They're talking about the mighty deeds of God. They're, they're talking in praise and in worship to God, and they're speaking in such a way that all the people from all the world are hearing the name of God and the great deeds of God being proclaimed. Now I'm conscious that this is an interdenominational group, isn't it? So we have people from all sorts of backgrounds, so I'm not going to get into the controversial bit about tongues today. Is that okay? If you came this morning expecting something controversial, well I'm not going to do that. My, my question is, what was the significance on the day of Pentecost? What was the importance of this particular sign gift 
on the day of Pentecost. Why, why did this happen? Why is it associated? Well, can I say that this is amazingly missional? The reason why they speak in other languages is that God is now saying to his people, I'm opening the door for the whole world. Symbolically, in all these nations, now the gospel is for the whole world. The plan of God is such that now you must take the gospel to every nation under heaven. Let me try and prove it to you. Keep your finger in Acts 2 and turn back to the beginning of the Bible and to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world. He made everything out of nothing by the power of his word for the purpose of his glory and declared it was all good. He creates Adam and Eve, our first parents, and he puts them in the garden in a perfect environment. Everything is perfect for the man except for the fact he doesn't have a wife. So, so he puts him into a sleep and he wakes him up and, and Adam wakes up from this sleep and he rubs his eyes and he looks into the face of the most beautiful woman he has ever seen. That's it. Which wouldn't be difficult. And, and, and everything is good. It is very good. And then you know the tragedy of chapter 3. Adam sins as the head of the race. He sins and sin enters into the bloodstream of the human race and, and the pronunciation of the curse on the, on the earth and the curse on human uh, life is pronounced by God. And in chapter 4, what's the first thing that happens? Death. Death enters into the world. And so you, you think of the tragedy of it. Uh, Cain and Abel, the first man born in a natural way is a murderer. And the second man born in a natural way is a martyr. And then as we read on, we, we, we see the, the descendants of, of, uh, of, of these first parents. And you have that little phrase in chapter 5, he died, he died, he died, he died. And in those first chapters of the Bible, chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and over to chapter 11, God is dealing with the whole world. He has a chosen people, those who, are, 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 who fear him and walk with him, and Noah who finds grace with God, and yet he's dealing with the whole world. His message is for the whole world. He's the God of the whole world. And so uh, even when he calls uh, uh, Noah and he kind of washes the, the, the world clean and, and, uh, uh, and, and you get the nation started, he's still the God of the whole world. Till you come to chapter 11. And you'll know that man rebels against God at the Tower of Babel. Look at verse 5 of chapter 11. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The tower of Babel is a fist in the face of God. It is human beings saying, we will not allow God to rule over us. They shake their fist in the face of Almighty God. And God said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So God sees their rebellion and he comes amongst them and he comes in judgment. You see that? This is an act of judgment. He confuses their languages and then verse 8, he scatters them over the whole earth. And so they stop building the city. That is why verse 9, it is called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. What is the result of judgment? The result of judgment is confusion and scattering. What does God do immediately after that? Turn over to chapter 12. Immediately after scattering the nations, God's focus now comes specifically onto the nation of Israel. One man who will become a family, who will become a nation. 
Look at the first thing God does almost after the, 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 the confusion and the judgment and, and, and uh, the, the scattering. Verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God so loved the world that he chose Israel. God so loved the world that he chose this man to whom he would reveal his word and reveal his promises and through whom the seed would come by whom the whole world would be blessed. So in the moment when God turns from the world to concentrate on one man and one family, on one nation, even at that moment in time, he lays down a promise one day through the seed of Abraham, every nation on earth will be blessed. Can you see that? One of the great promises, maybe the, the fundamental promise of the Old Testament, I will bless the whole world through the seed of Abraham. Through Jesus, every nation will be blessed. But from now onwards, through the rest of the Old Testament, through all of those uh, law books, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, through those history books, Joshua and Judges, all the way through to Chronicles and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, and through the prophets and through the Psalms, there are promises of God's blessing for the whole world. And there are examples of Gentiles coming to the Lord. And yet those Gentiles, in order to become those who follow the Lord, have to become Jews. And so uh, men have to be circumcised and women have to be purified. And, and for the rest of the Old Testament, and even into the ministry of Jesus, this message of salvation is for the Jewish people. I have come to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel, says Jesus. And his ministry focuses on Israel. He doesn't do a world tour. He concentrates on Galilee. And then he goes down to Jerusalem. And his ministry is to the Jewish people. And, and the world is in darkness. The pagan world is in darkness. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were without God and you were without hope in the world. And for all those years in the Old Testament, that's what it was like. And then you come to the end of Matthew's Gospel. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, if you will. Now Jesus has died and he has risen and he's ascended to heaven and everything is about to change. Verse, 12, uh, verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. In other words, everything has changed now. I, I, I've fulfilled the purposes of God. He is the, the second Adam. He is the one who is the seed of Abraham. He is the one who is the seed of David. He is the one who's died to conquer sin. He's the one who, who's risen victorious and glorious. Oh, don't you love him this morning? Isn't he magnificent? The Son of God in all his glory, in all his majesty. He says, now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Everything is changed now. Therefore, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Can you see what's happening there? No longer focused on these people of Israel. It's the whole of the world. So what happens when you turn over to Acts chapter 2? Well, Acts chapter 2 is quite simply the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Can you see that? What happens at Bible? They're confused. They don't understand. What happens in Acts chapter 2? They understand the gospel being proclaimed in their own languages. They understand now that this good news of the cross and the resurrection is for all people. And the rest of the Acts of the Apostles is the outworking 
of that glorious ministry? Why was the Holy Spirit sent on the day of Pentecost to empower God's people for world mission, for God to say, I'm no longer going to focus on one people? Now, it doesn't mean that we neglect Jewish people. The gospel is for the Jews first and then for the Gentiles. There's nothing in my Bible that tells me that we don't do evangelism to Jewish people at all. But now the gospel is for the whole world. And so when you go down to the, to the missionary uh, uh, exhibition, my wife, can I tell you something? My wife and I snuck in there this morning because we thought with a wheelchair it's much more difficult to get round, so we'll go when there's no one else there. And it was great because we went round the whole exhibition in about 10 minutes. And it's magnificent. Who of you are, ex- who are exhibitors here this morning? Hands up. Okay, there's just a few. It's just one. It's the whole world. It's a whole range of ministries. We we counted almost every continent because that's what the gospel is for now. And that is the purpose of the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was not given simply to make us enjoy our salvation. The Holy Spirit was given so that we would be driven out into a lost world to take the gospel to every nation and every people group. Isn't that exciting? And here's the wonderful thing. We, we, we don't have to depend on our own strength or our own ability. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us. He speaks through all our weaknesses. I, 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 um, I've done a surgery every Wednesday morning for most of my ministry. And every Wednesday morning there'd be a knock on the door and there was this little lady called Etty. And Etty would, would bring me a cup of coffee and a biscuit about halfway through the morning and then I'd say, what can we pray for, Etty? And she said, please pray for Ernie. Ernie was her husband, and he wasn't a believer, and he wasn't interested in anything to do with the gospel. In fact, when her son and daughter were baptized, Ernie wouldn't come. And, and at Christmas, he wouldn't come, and he wouldn't come to anything. And so we prayed earnestly for Ernie. At one week, we had flu in our family. My kids got it, and then my wife got it, and then about lunchtime on Saturday, I got it. Now, I have this on, on, on really good, established medical grounds. A, a doctor told me this, a consultant told me this. When a man gets flu, it is far worse than when a woman gets flu. Okay, that's true, isn't it? Yes? Thank you, guys. Yeah. So, so Saturday lunchtime, I was dying. I was at the end of my, 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 my life, and, and, and I said to my wife, I feel so... And she said, well, ring one of the elders, get them to preach. Oh, no, I've got to preach. I've got because I'm a martyr as well as a sufferer, and so I, I, I said no. I, and so I went into the I went into the pulpit that morning, and I felt awful. Some of you men who preach, you know what it's like when, when you're you, you're not in command of your voice. You feel as if you've got you know rocks in your mouth, and and and, and, it's, and, and that was the morning as I looked out, three rows back, Ernie had chosen to come that morning. That was the day he came. Well, to make things worse. Back of our church, we had a window and, and uh, curtains that pulled across because at a certain point in the, in the service, the sun would shine through into the face of the preacher. So I got up to preach, feeling really awful, my head full, my eyes swimming, barely able to see my script. And at that point, the curtains didn't work. So the light came through and hit me directly in the face. It was like one of these near-death experiences. Walk to the light, walk towards the light. I spoke for 20 minutes. To this day, I haven't got a clue what I spoke about. I kind of, it was something in Ephesians, but I spoke, and when I'd finished, I sat down and I felt awful. For, 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 For Ernie, on that day, that he would come on that day, I went home, I went to bed, I, I lay in bed for two days. Uh, on Wednesday I went to the church and I, I was going to plead with, with, with Etty, please let me come and see Ernie, please let me say it's not like that normally in church, please, please. And, I, and there's a knock on the door and it was Ernie. 
and he came, he brought me the coffee, and uh, he kind of stood there, and I said, honey, good to see you. He said, yeah. He said, uh, can I ask you a question? I said, of course. It's about what you said on Sunday morning. I said, um, what in particular? Can you remind me? <laughs> and he said, you talked about flying to Jesus for salvation. You used a phrase, I can't remember, it was something like, wash me, saviour, or I die. And of course, I, I kind of, I get it, when, I, when I didn't know what I was saying, I just got into gospel mode. I talked about the cross and the resurrection and the blood of Jesus washing us from our sins and, you know, foul I to the fountain fly, rock of ages cleft for me. When I, when, when I come to the Lord, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, saviour, or I die. And I told him the gospel. And he said, could I be a Christian today? Could I be saved today? I said, yes, honey. And we prayed. And he followed the Lord for the rest of his life. Now, can I just say, that, that, that's not to say that, that, you know, when you're at your worst, God is at his best, you know, because sometimes God actually blesses my sermons when I'm okay. <laughs> but what it's saying is this, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to take the gospel and to apply it into the lives of lost men and women, even when we feel dreadful. Now, even when we've, 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 we've prepared as much as we can and we've preached as passionately and as powerfully as we can and, and we still blow it and we still feel we and yet the Holy Spirit has been sent by God to take our feeble words and to open the eyes of lost men and women and to show them the truth of, of Christ and to raise them up from the dead. <laughs> He's the spirit of life. He's the one who gave life to the universe. He's the one who gives life to lost men and women. What is the purpose of Pentecost? What's the meaning of Pentecost? It is to throw the, the doors open to the whole world that the Spirit would come and empower God's people to preach God's word to lost people. And so if you're struggling this morning and your ministry seems small and, and it's difficult, well, you just need to depend on God and cry to him because his Spirit is the living Spirit of God. And we are, well, we're all Pentecostals now, actually, aren't we? We should be. We're all this side of Pentecost. So that's, the, that's the, uh, the what, and the last thing I want to say this morning is the why. So why did it happen? We, we've talked a little bit about that already, but let me, let me just drive it home before you can go off and have some lunch. Why did it happen? What's the significance of Pentecost? Let me say it's two things. Number one, it's a culmination, and number two, it's an inauguration. First of all, it is a culmination. Pentecost is a one-off, unique, unrepeatable event. It's an unprecedented event. It could never happen again. In this sense, it's something that, that happens in history in the same way as the cross and the resurrection. There can never be another cross. The atonement is complete. It never needs to be repeated. It never needs to be improved. It never needs to be added to. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. The cross is a once and for all historical event, and so is the resurrection. It's a historical event. It really happened in history. And Pentecost is in the same category. This is an event in history that can never happen again. This is the moment in time when the Spirit comes to dwell, not only in the church, but amongst God's people. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, as we'll see tomorrow morning, that I will give my Spirit to all people. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes to special people at special times for special purposes. So in the Old Testament, he's always present, but, but, but he's not present amongst all God's people. Now the Holy Spirit is poured out on all people. So, so John can say, Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 7, the Holy Spirit has not yet been given because Jesus has not yet been glorified. The coming of Christ, the, the ascension of Christ, the glorification of Christ brings about this unique event, the pouring out 
of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus speaks about in the upper room, it's to your advantage I go away, because if I don't go away, you won't receive the Spirit. If I do go away, I will receive the gift of the Father, and I will pour the Spirit upon you. So this is a unique event. If you, uh, if you just glance down... Uh, in, in the chapter, and you look at verse uh, uh, verse uh, 29, is it? Verse 29, or uh, no, it isn't. I'll find it in a minute. Uh, verse 33, Acts 2, 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Spirit, and he's poured out what you now see and hear. In other words, this is the confirmation, this is the, this is the event for which the, the cross and the resurrection and the ascension were, were leading. This is the month. This is a unique event. Now, at this point, I'm going to be slightly controversial because if you have a Pentecostal theology, I love Pentecostal people, I love charismatic people, I praise God for what God is doing in the world today, in many parts of the world through charismatic and Pentecostal brothers, but I'm not a Pentecostal and I don't share a Pentecostal theology. There are Pentecostal people who will say, well, look look at Acts chapter 2. What what, what can we learn from Acts chapter 2? Well, at the beginning of the chapter, these are believers. Is that true? Yes, it is. What happens on the day of Pentecost? They're baptised in the Holy Spirit. Is that what happens? Yes, because it's what Jesus said would happen. And therefore, it's possible to be a Christian and to not have received the gift of the Spirit, and so actually Christians need to be born again, and then they maybe at a later stage get a second blessing, a second experience, the gift of the Spirit, which may or may not be symbolised or signified by the speaking in other tongues. And that's a standard Pentecostal theology. Now, I I want to suggest that that, that we can't draw that from Acts chapter 2, because Acts chapter 2 is a unique event. If we're to take Acts chapter 2 as a model for the experience of the believer, then what we have to do is not to look at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, but the end of Acts chapter 2. Look at at the last few verses, where Peter has preached his sermon, and then in verse 38, the people have heard, or verse 37, the people have heard, been cut to the heart, what must we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you repent and believe and turn to Christ, you will receive two gifts. Christ comes to his people with two hands. In the one hand is the forgiveness of sin, and in the other hand is the gift of the Holy Spirit. When someone believes, they receive two gifts from heaven. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell within them. They receive the gift of the forgiveness of their sins. And notice verse 39, this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, us Gentiles in other words, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In other words, it seems to me that what's being said there in Acts chapter 2 is that that, that this is a unique event. It can't be repeated. It's not a model for Christian ministry at the beginning or the Christian life at the beginning, but at the end of the chapter, what is the standard experience of believers? Now, the moment you believe you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And indeed, that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Read chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14 when you get home. The moment you receive the message, you believed, and God sealed you with the Holy Spirit. What happens when you become a Christian? For every Christian, God puts the stamp on their lives. The sign that we're real believers is that we're sealed with the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a believer. That's what Paul says to the Romans. Now, does that mean that we don't need to think about the Spirit or pray for the Spirit? In the same book of Ephesians, in chapter 5 and verse 18, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, be being filled. That's the nature of the Greek. In other words, you you, you come with all your need and you say, God, today, if I'm to live a holy life, I need you. I'm to preach your word or serve you today, I need you. Lord, fill me afresh. 
I can remember teaching when I was a young Christian, being her, her, her teaching, that the filling of the Spirit was a once-off experience that you get after you were saved. And I had this picture in my mind of my life as like a little beaker. And I'm kind of walking along with this little beaker, and it's full of the Holy Spirit, but I need to be careful in case I spill it. You, know, you get that picture, and, and you know, if it's a one-off and, and, and you're only filled with the Spirit once, then, then you're in trouble, aren't you? What happens if you sin, or what happens if you fail, or what happens if you backslide, or what happens if you grieve God? But that's not the tense of the verb. The tense of the verb is be being filled. It's a passive thing. We come with all our need, and every day, every day my prayer is, Lord, forgive my sins and fill me afresh with your Spirit. Any of you ever been to Niagara Falls? Anybody? If you go to Niagara Falls, you arrive at Niagara Falls and you, you, you kind of stop the car and you put down the window and you can hear the roar of the falls in the background. My wife and I went on the Maid of the Mist and you kind of go towards the falls and there's these gallons, billions of gallons of water. And I, I think of that as almost like the, the power of God, the life of God, of the Spirit. And we come with our little beakers and we come to the, to the fullness of God's grace and God's mercy, and we put our little beakers of our lives and say, God, help me today, God, bless me today. And, and the infinite Spirit comes and he takes us and he uses us for God's glory. Isn't that amazing? This is a, this is a unique event. This is an unrepeatable event. And what is the consequence? Every believer is sealed with the Spirit, and now every believer can be filled with the Spirit. And we need to pray that God would fill us with his spirit every day that we might live for his glory. This is, number one, a culmination. But number two, can I suggest to you that this, this event of Pentecost is also a, 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 a beginning, it's an inauguration. Although this event is, is unique, it, it is the start of something new. It is the start, if I could put it like this, of the age of the Holy Spirit. It is the start of, of the time when God works in miraculous ways. There will never be another Pentecost but there are, are features of Pentecost that happen when, when the church knows something of God's blessing and revival. What happened on that day of Pentecost? The church was filled with God's presence. The disciples were filled with God's spirit. The preaching was filled with God's power. And the lost were filled with God's salvation. And that's what happens at revival. That's what happens when God draws near in revival. Let me, let me read Oswald Saunders describing the 1904 revival. It was 1904 and all Wales was ablaze. The nation had drifted away from God and church attendance was abysmal. Sin abounded on every side. Suddenly, like an unexpected tornado, the Spirit of God swept over the land. Churches were crowded and multitudes couldn't get in. Meetings lasted till midnight. There were three services a day. Singing, testimony, preaching and prayer was all that people wanted. Old debts were paid. Relationships were mended. Sinners were saved. In five weeks, 20,000 people were added to the church. That's revival. That's God at work. And the God of Pentecost doesn't change. And the Spirit who now dwells within the church doesn't change. He is the sovereign God. Are you believe that God could do that today? Do you believe he could do it here in Northern Ireland? Do you believe he could do it in other parts of the world? Indeed, he is doing things like this all over the world. We used to sing that chorus, didn't we? All over the world the Spirit is moving. All over the world, as the prophet said it would be. All over the world there's a mighty revelation of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Brothers and sisters, we need God to come and visit us afresh, don't we? We need something of God's power and God's grace and God's mercy. We need it individually. I need it in my life. You know, preachers aren't always good at telling the truth. 
Preachers sometimes make it as if they're, they're better than that. As a preacher, I struggle with sin every day of my life. I battle against that old nature that pulls me down every day of my life. And I can't overcome sin without God's help. The Christian life is not difficult. You know that? Not difficult to be a Christian. Not difficult. Impossible. It's imp- you can't do it. But God has sent his spirit that we might serve him. In our ministry, you know, when my congregation asks me, what, what can we do for you? My, my answer is always pray for me. That whenever I preach, I might know the touch of God and the touch of heaven. In our churches, that there might be places where God is present. And amongst lost people, people who are without God and without Christ and without hope in the world, who are on their way to hell, on their way to lostness forever and ever and ever. What do we need? We need revival. We need God to do something. We need God. And we need him in every part of our church and every part of our lives and every part of our ministries and every part of our marriages and every part of our homes and bringing up our kids. We need God. We need God. We need the Spirit of God to come and do his unique work. And that's what much of our prayer should be for. The end of the life of um, General Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, there was a great funeral with, with people from all over, uh, people who'd been saved, hundreds and hundreds of people, men and women who'd been saved from the most abysmal lives coming uh, to this great man's funeral. And as, as they gathered and, uh, uh, at the service, it was told us to all the people's testimonies as to what God had done in an amazing way. And when, when the church had closed and or, or was almost empty, there was one young man who, who was seen to be staying at the front and he was on his knees and he was praying, he was pleading with God. And, and, and someone went and stood and they could hear his, his, his words, his impassioned prayer with God. Oh God, you have done an amazing thing. Oh God, you have visited your people through, through General Booth. Oh God, he said, oh God, oh God, do it again. Do it again. Oh God, do it again. Oh that God would do something miraculous and amazing in our day. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to sing now. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.